Thank you. This is a terrific privilege for me. I can't imagine a, a, a nicer way to spend a, a damp, cool November evening than in conversation with Gore Vidal. Obviously, you're of a like mind. Um, I, I don't know anybody who more completely embodies Henry James's standard of the artist as, as the one on whom nothing is lost. Uh, and I really mean nothing in the case of Gore Vidal. He's done it all in fiction and in history and in imagination. And what a wonderful moment to be, to be engaging him. Uh, days away from the 40th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, but in sort of full flight of uh, empire and uh, a presidential campaign. Uh, we may even get to Myra Breckenridge, for all I know. I mean, uh, there's, there's so much to talk about. And also, I am just the advance guard for you and for all of us. I'd like everybody to be ready with a, with a thought or a question for the great man. Um, perhaps we should just start. I mean, we, we've got to get to uh, Bush, Dean, Clark, Kerry, and all those characters, too. But I, we might just as well begin with Washington, uh, Adams, and Jefferson, at the tail end of the book, Mr. Vidal, you you have a scene in, in Hyannisport with JFK biting on his cigar and observing that um, it turns out it, it was true. Those guys were giants of a scope that uh, he had not met in public life. Uh, what do we do with that insight, if indeed it's true? He was biting on his cigar. I wasn't. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, he was already president. You can't do it to a living president's cigar. <laughs> well, it was a very small cigar, too. as Ronald Reagan would say. <laughs> well, we fell into conversation about the Berlin Wall was just going up. Our foreign policy was once, once again brilliant, shrewd, <laughs> moving forward, you know, we were the Metternichs of the Western world. And suddenly Jack said, you know, we were playing backgammon, waiting for Bobby to come. It's the latest bad news. And he said, you know, your uncle Lefty Lewis was here. And Lefty said, how is it? In the 18th century, this little country produced the three great geniuses, Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton. And we sort of kicked that one around, and he said, you know, in this job, he, always, he had a lot of uhs in his voice. Uh, you know, um, and in this job, I get to meet everybody. <laughs> and uh, I'm struck by all these moors and shakers that I've always heard about, getting to know them how second-rate they all are. I see, he said, I see nothing but resumes. Of course, he said, I've never known anybody in my life except politicians. So I suddenly, I'm confronted with something called Dean Rusk. Who is he? How do I find out about him? There isn't much time. Life is short. Resumes are long. <laughs> and in a sense, this little book that I've done is 40 years later. I'm answering his question as best I can. 
And I said, the obvious reason, I said, those who were in politics then did not spend all their time raising money. Back in Jack's day, they didn't. And if they did, it was done at the dark, the dark of the moon. But it was not obsessive. Now the amounts that are being spent to buy the presidency are just obscene. But I said they had longer time to think about things. Congress rose at a decent time of year. They went home. They read books. They talked to each other. They wrote to each other. There was a generation that genuinely was interested in inventing a nation. And what should it be? Extension of the monarchy in England. Adams somewhat favored a hereditary monarchy. And he wanted titles. So being a pudgy little thing, he was known as his rotundity. (laughs) They all, they'd stopped him at the last minute when he had to introduce George Washington at the time of the inauguration as his mightiness. Six senators jumped on him and said, don't you dare say that. (laughs) Washington looked aggrieved, I just said. And so here we are, 40 years after, um, just what, 40 years since he was murdered by persons unknown. Uh, I'm answering his question, which of course nobody can answer. But I, I said one thing which is not taken into account very much is um, how much we were children of England, particularly New England, And how much there was a liberalizing breeze of Cobden and Bright and so on going through old England. And it was a very good moment to start a country for us people. And then there were those who liked the idea of aristocracy. Alexander Hamilton married into it. And Hamilton was pretty good on the subject. He made a case for it, which I don't agree with. But he said those who have the most stake in a country will never let it fall. So that's how we got the bushes. Uh, they have a large stake, at least in the oil and gas reserves. And so I decided I would just sit down and do straight history and use only the words that they had actually used when it came to making the Constitution up to the election of 1800. You'll be happy to know I do the Alien and Sedition Acts in great detail. It was said of uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was not the sweet, kindly old man that he has been depicted, but had a very sharp tongue. And when he was in Paris on their mission, Jefferson, Adams, and himself, uh, to deal with the French, raise money, and so on, he said of Adams, he said, I'm thinking about Adams all day today, driving through his countryside. He said, you know, Adams is a very honorable, intelligent, he's a good man. But there are times when he is totally out of his senses. And, of course, the Alien and Sedition Acts were, but now he was prescient. They've come back as the USA Patriot Acts. Does this sound all right? Sounds great. But he he didn't switch it on. It's on in my ear. Oh, good. Hmm? Oh, we want the podium moved? Well, come now. Let's just see. 
I too can invent a nation. <laughs> but will it work? <laughs> could, I, could I follow up on the Adams thought? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a lot of people in this room will have read David McCulloch on Adams. Your book is a kind of conversation in a certain sense with that book. One of the striking things about the book, it was sort of outside the book in a way, was that Adams and his son were the model in a fashion of Bush and son, the first and then now the second father-son combination. Reminds you of the notion that, um, was it Marx or Lenin who said history presents itself first as tragedy and then as farce. Um, but specifically, I, I, I enjoyed reading that McCulloch book as a kind of story of the creation of an aristocracy, which has again been sort of repeated in a kind of uh, very open uh, construction of a, a sort of pseudo-royalty. Um, do you want to hold the, part of that Adams example responsible for, for the Bush phenomenon? Good heavens, I wouldn't blame the Adamses, but <laughs> that. First of all, they were Protestant, deeply Protestant, probably all of them atheists, but simultaneously, I'm an atheist, but I'm a powerfully influenced by the Protestantism with which I was brought up. We must bear witness to what we do and to what the nation does. And one of the greatest presidents was John Quincy Adams. He was not terribly successful at office work, in the, but he set our foreign policy on the right course. The Monroe Doctrine was the creation of John Quincy Adams when he was Secretary of State. And then he made the greatest statement <clears throat> in sort of a general succession to General Washington, they asked the United States to come to the aid of Greece, Greek liberation against Turkey. And he said, I have to paraphrase this, but he said, the United States is not a paladin that goes forth to fight in foreign lands for causes no matter how just. Because if she did, she could become dictatress of the world and lose her own soul. And that is the greatest advice of any of the presidents since George Washington's farewell, that nations do not have friends because or enemies. They become slaves then to passion. They have only interests. And to look after your interests is good business, and to have passions, hatred, to listen to the cheerleader from Andover going around saying what, how much he hates the, oh, the, the leader of North Korea. Well, who is he to hate him? I'm sure he's very unpleasant. There are even some people in American politics that I think I'm beginning to hate. <laughs> but your personal opinion is one thing, and you do business with them otherwise. So I don't see anything dynastic in the Adamses except a, a temperament which went, continued on to the next, the, well, to the last great generation, which was Henry Adams. And uh, he summed them all up, and it was beautifully done. Many of them were alcoholics, which is quite interesting, particularly the children of John Quincy and uh, 
siblings, I guess, of Henry. So it's, families do burn out, but they burn very brightly for a very long time. You're lucky to be here in Adams country. I wish we had more of them down in Washington. <laughs> May I ask, you, you wrote about empire, um, not only in novel form, but about the idea, of the, the, tr- the fact of American empire before it was fashionable, before it was kind of unmistakable. Um, <clears throat> Is, is it irreversible now? Well, I think Gibbon would say no. <laughs> it's highly reversible. <laughs> and try to step aside when the capital falls on you. Uh, ours will go as the others have gone. It was kindly old Benjamin Franklin, uh, again, being prescient, At the time of the Constitutional Convention, he read the handiwork. He was too old and too sick to have been very active, but he read the result. And he didn't like it much, but he said, I recommend we accept this thing immediately with all its errors. And he said, it will give us good government for a number of years. And then... It will collapse due to the corruption of the people for whom only despotism is a possible government. I have looked through every high school history textbook I could find of late. His comments about the Constitution are indeed recorded, and that is always left out. And even the great Professor Morgan, who wrote a lovely recent book, on Franklin, left it out. Well, the prediction about the corruption of the people has come totally true. The mutual funds are now nailed. Enron, uh, Halliburton, wherever you can be crooked, they're crooked. I've gone through all of American history in my lifetime, and I now feel I've lived through most of it. I mean, Harding was a, you know, Salvation Army compared to what we've got there now. (laughs) He saved himself, but however, you know, you start your work at home. This corruption is beyond anything dreamed of, even by uh, Franklin, who understood human perfidy quite well. So I think uh, we are at the end of the old republic. It ended officially, in my mind, in 1950, when in the interest of the Cold War, much of it cooked up by Harry Truman, uh, the country was militarized. The brains behind it was Dean Acheson, a very brilliant lawyer, who had imperial visions. And that's how we, we, we had 90% income tax then to pay for this huge buildup that the Russians were coming and they weren't going anywhere. And we knew it after Potsdam. And they wanted to make an agreement. Stalin did. No, he wasn't a nice man, and we've got to get over this habit of saying, oh, Saddam Hussein is an awful man. The things he does to his own people. Well, I'm sure he does. And let them solve it. They should. It's their business, not ours. And if only we had a John Quincy Adams today to give voice to this, 
I mean, listening to the people on television, I mean, their voices shake when they start talking about preemptive wars against countries that have done us no harm. This is unthinkable. A great moralist in the past, somebody I'm sure you wouldn't think of as one, I didn't until I read his memoirs, and that was General Grant. And General Grant said, this is again Protestant virtue, he said, I have always felt that nations like individuals are responsible for what they do and will be punished or rewarded for what they do. He said, I was a young lieutenant out of West Point in 1846 at the time of the Mexican War. I knew then that what we had done to Mexico, attacking them, seizing California, and the basis of six or seven other states, he said, I knew that the judgment of God would be upon us, and it came. The Civil War was retribution for what we had done to Mexico. Think of another president who would have said something like that in office. But where were we? (laughs) (laughs) We were right there. Um, We have um, to choose from, um, as alternatives, men by the name of Howard Dean, John Kerry, Wesley Clark, Joe Lieberman, Dick Gebhardt, and and others. Um, Your views. Well, first, the men themselves don't make the slightest bit of difference. I mean, it's where they got their money from that determines their actions. This seems to be a very simple thing to figure out, but nobody figures it out, so people get enthusiasms. Oh, I like his smile, or, you know, my cousin Alfred used to play poker with him every night, and uh, we have these powerful motives for wanting to support candidates. By and large, the system is nothing. It's like the Roman Empire when the Praetorian Guard would sell uh, the emperorship to the highest bidder. They had some very bad governments, too, at that time. I, I just don't see any great virtue in any of them because none has come representative of anything, even of Benjamin Franklin or of John Quincy Adams. They come in response to ambition. Nothing wrong with that if it's put together, if you have some kind of cohesive view of the country. Dean was the correct in assessing how unpopular the war really was. He, he didn't believe the polls. And people who know how polls are rigged know the popularity of that war briefly was all rigged. So you got a great issue, and now where's the next one? You can't just do anger at the war. I proposed to one of his people for a second act for him. I said, why not? The only way you can ever make progress in American politics is to go backwards. Go back to the origin and restore the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. USA Patriot Act got rid of them both, or pretty much. Take take your stand on the recovery of our liberties. I think you'll get a great response. I know people are excited taking their shoes off at the airport, and this is 
a kind of new religious movement <laughs> bordering on Islam, I should think. <laughs> but overcome your excitement. Tiberius occasionally made nice jokes. And when Tiberius became emperor, the Senate sent him an overall charter saying that they would automatically uh, accept any law, any legislation that he sent to them would be automatically passed. And he sent back where he said, you're crazy. Suppose the emperor is mad. Suppose uh, you get a very bad one who wants to destroy the state. You're not going to say yes. You're not going to rubber stamp it. They send it right back to him. Everything, imperial majesty, Augustus, Felix, Pontifex Maximus, all the titles is yours. And he sent back words. How eager you are to be slaves. Listen to Tiberius. I'd just like to draw a distinction on the matter of money. There is an interesting difference in the case of Howard Dean. He has figured out a way to use the Internet to raise vast millions of dollars at a, at, at least they claim, average donation 75, $77. And he does, I mean, there is clearly an effort to say there's another way to finance these things. Uh, does that impress you at all? No. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it, it's not, it's nice that the gas and oil industry isn't doing it. And that the internet at least sounds slightly more democratic. That others can be gulled into financing a candidate. There may be no other way. There is one other way which I've been proposing for 30 years. The air belongs to all of us. The networks and cable, they are, well, particularly the networks, have a license to print money. Therefore, forced the networks to give free time and cable uh, to all the candidates. Costs nothing. They can't buy any time. This would immediately remove the vast amounts of money that they have to raise for Big Tuesday and Mardi Gras or whatever else is coming up. <laughs> and that would work. Most civilized countries do that. And why should a presidential election last Longer than eight weeks. Get it over with. It's now four years, or sometimes it's eight years before, before Macbeth makes it to, what was the name of that wood again? <laughs> yes. Um, you, you, you spoke of the Roman Empire, and, but I also want your comment on Wesley Clark. It struck me, uh, reading a book you probably know better than I, Mar Margaret, Margaret Yosinar's Hadrian's Memoirs, that there was a great deal of Hadrian and Wesley Clark, especially Hadrian observing Trajan uh, pursuing a kind of endless war into Mesopotamia. And he writes about it uh, wonderfully with sort of, a, it's kind of a portrait of Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush together. And he says, get out. And, of course, when he becomes emperor, by fair means and foul and a lot of murder, uh, he pulls back from the east. But I, it gave me a, a way at least of framing Wesley Clark's imagination and probably his intention. Uh, what's, what's your feeling about him? That well, I would like to meet his Antinous. <laughs> there is no Antinous, I don't think. Well, they better be if he's going to be uh, Adrian. 
I was born in the cadet hospital at West Point. My father was the first instructor in aeronautics there. And West Pointers have many good values, and we saw it particularly in the Second World War. We produced some extraordinarily good generals. Nobody knows how with all the drinking they had done as lieutenants in Panama. <laughs> the fact that they could even get up and get dressed, you know, was a wonder. Yet the Russians uh, beat the Nazis, but then we beat the Japanese, and that was West Point and Annapolis. So th they were good men, and Eisenhower turned out to be a wise one toward the end with his warnings about the military-industrial complex. But I see nothing in Wesley Clark but just somebody with a resume. He tells you all the jobs he held, which seems to me very tiny. Think of Lincoln's resume. <laughs> One calling card would about do it. <laughs> Had a disagreeable experience in my run for the Senate in Illinois. That should be about it. <laughs> I, I don't like these men of great accomplishment who have accomplished nothing and who mean nothing. He's not said anything intelligent on any subject that I've come across. Now, who knows what he mutters in silence to himself. <laughs> I think, is, is it not passing brave to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? This is what you're up against. It's just ambition. King of the castle is what they're playing. Well, I want a better castle and suitable for a better king. So this system isn't going to give it to us. If you had more free time, and I like Dennis Kucinich, even though he looks rather peculiar, but he... <laughs> this is not a beauty pageant, and everything he says is quite correct. He hasn't missed one issue that he's turned to, that he hasn't been, in my view, at least right about. They won't take him seriously because he's the wrong height. And... Uh, the hair is deplorable. <laughs> it's the only negative thing I can say about him. But then he can get a crew cut, perhaps, on an inauguration day. If they take him seriously, people might listen to the issues. If they listen to the issues, things might start to change. But they won't. They can't. The same people who own the political system own the media. They're not going to betray their own kind in whom they have invested so much money to allow them tax breaks and uh, privatize, deregulate. It's been a field day the last 20 years for the ill intention. One of the paradoxes of the age, it strikes me, is that we have this explosion of information technology. A lot of it empowers individuals, especially on the, on the Internet. Enormous democratization of the tools of communication and yet we're also uh, living in, as I don't remember in my time, uh, an age of propaganda and of, of rant and of kind of uh, monopolization of the buzzwords and the conversation. Um, how do we get out of this? You run out of money is the usual way for most countries. British Empire collapsed in 1914 when Asquith's government couldn't pay for the 
first war, and the pound was about to go out of business. So J.P. Morgan came to the rescue of the British pound. Then he said, finally, I'm too small. I'm just one banker. I can't support a major world currency. So he persuaded Wilson to get us into the war over the dead body of my grandfather, Senator Gore, who had helped make him president. And that's how we got into that war. Well, that's again, it's all money. There comes a time when you can't afford these imperial adventures. And there's a time when the people get very tired of seeing their tax money go for such frivolities as uh, landing on that aircraft carrier, whatever it was, proclaiming victory, you know, as another hundred of your soldiers have just been shot. Uh, this is all, this is true propaganda time. So I think when the money's gone, and the ta- coming taxes are going to be horrendous, and I remember when the buildup started when Senator Vandenberg told Harry Truman that if you want this military buildup because the Russians are coming, and Vandenberg knew they weren't and Truman knew they weren't, but we wanted the buildup to frighten Stalin. He said, well, you're going to have to frighten the American people to death or you're not going to get any money out of Congress. Truman said, I'll take care of that, and he did. And that's when the age of propaganda and the demonizing of Russia the demonizing of communism, the demonizing of Cuba, of Castro, of this. There's nobody that we haven't said we hate and tried to kill, which another dynasty was busy doing with Castro. So all this bad behavior has really come out of an imbalance in property around the world, reserve currencies. And we go back to George Washington. Nations should not have enemies or friends, but only goodwill, good faith, and do business. I hate to give the values of one of Sinclair Lewis's characters. That's pretty good compared to what we've got. Does it ever strike you that the new buildup in a certain way is really about China, about and when, when the Bush Doctrine proclaims that nobody should even think about rivaling our military or our economic power, uh, that he's really speaking of uh, a country three, four, five times bigger than ours, just as clever, and getting their act together in a significant way? Well, you know, don't allege that he's thinking. <laughs> Let us bring a sense of proportion to these fantasies. <laughs> Somebody told him something, and he can't quite remember what it was. <laughs> We're China bad, we good. <laughs> Jesus wants us for a sunbeam. <laughs> China will have its turn, and there's nothing we can do about it. Perhaps we could blow them up, probably, but then we'd, we would go, too which might solve everything. (laughs) Clean sweep. I'd like to welcome everybody into the conversation. We're all here together. Uh, There are two microphones, and um, you know the man's range. Please. James. 
First of all, thank you. Um, in 2000, I think we had a challenge to the rigged political system, which you so eloquently uh, decry and uh, analyze, and represented by Ralph Nader, who was, I think, unlike the current crop of Democratic candidates, someone who was connected to more than just his own personal ambition, although he certainly has ambition. Um, now we're hearing we've got to give all that up. We've got to, you know, it's all too important. We, we, we ended up with Attila the Hun. I wonder if you could talk about how you see um, the possibilities for some kind of challenge to the duopoly. Uh, Ralph Nader has formed an exploratory committee. Is there any sane purpose whatsoever in his possibly running again? Could you speak to this, this uh, issue? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think he's been undone by this administration. They've proved to be so much worse than anything we had dreamed of that the main impetus that I feel around the country is we've got to get rid of them. And if that means uh, President Sharpton. <laughs> actually, I like Sharpton. But <laughs> I'm not going to get overboard. I'm not going to become personal about it all, but Sharpton's pretty good, pretty sharp. And uh, we could do worse, and we are doing worse. But, uh, no, I see if he runs again, I like him to a point, but he has no natural gift for politics, and you have to be a politician to put together a, poli a party just doesn't happen. And you don't show the flag. I remember the first time he ran, uh, he didn't campaign at all. He just put his name on the ballot and expected something to happen. I would like to see a bit more messianic uh, powers from him. The people are waiting to hear something. And, you know, that awful bag in the automobile to keep you from ending up in the windshield is not really the sort of thing that makes the blood tingle. <laughs> I, there are other things that would. What about the restoration of uh, the Constitution? What about returning the rights to declare war to the House of Representatives, which have not been exercised? <laughs> and the power of the purse. Return that to the Congress. Don't spend money we don't have uh, by executive fiat. I mean, there are a lot of specifics that if he would move in on, he might be pretty good at it. On the other hand, he, do, he does not inspire. I ran him for president back in, uh, oh, God, a long time ago. He was furious. I put him on the cover of Esquire. I used to write a lot for them. So there was Ralph Nader, who had just won his first battle with General Motors, and the whole country was thrilled. And I said, well, that's our next president. And uh, people thought it was tongue-in-cheek, but I was perfectly realistic. If we'd got him then, he was full of fire. Well, we'd have a lot more seat belts and things like that to, <laughs> to share. Well, he was furious at me. And I ran into him at a radio station in uh, Los Angeles last year. 
And I said, well, here you are. Just as I promised 30 years ago, here you are running for president. And he said, you know, I think I should have listened to you then. <laughs> I said, well, better late than never. But uh, I'm not an enthusiast. I just want to get them out. Thank you, Dave. Please. Um, at the very end of Christopher Lydon's questions, you had talked about uh, Bush where you said, don't allege that, he, that Bush is thinking. And what I wanted to ask you about Republican presidents in the post-war world, because it seems like a lot of them um, play on this idea that they are not intellectuals. And I saw this ad recently where it said Reagan, the amiable dunce, who outwitted the effete liberal snobs. And you have with Bush, you have with Reagan, even the historians say about Eisenhower that he kind of acted dumber than he really is. And I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on this style that Republicans seem to have, because Nixon fell out of that. But look what happened to Nixon. He was really held much more, maybe a lot more accountable than these other people. So I'd like to, your reflections on that. Well, Nixon proved to be politically the most liberal president since Franklin Roosevelt because he didn't give a damn. He was just too busy, you know, having nightmares about, <laughs> about the bad people are going to come and take him away. So he's going to spy on everybody, overthrow the government, something like that, just to keep busy. So all this liberal legislation got through with a president who didn't care what they were doing, just leave him alone. He once said, he actually said publicly, he said, you know, the United States doesn't really need a president for domestic affairs. Those are taken care of by business. <laughs> we need one for foreign affairs. Where he thought he was a master because he'd had all those dinner parties and all those guards with the funny uniforms. And he just felt at home with his own kind. Kings and queens abroad. So you get surprises in some of these. The Republican surprises have just been conglomerate America's lawyers, for the most part, are given the top job and to do cut taxes, cut corporate taxes, and make sure you get your contract without bidding. That's quite enough, you know. So they're idealists, but their ideal is not a healthy one for us. The Democrats somehow got lost. They forgot who they were. They forgot their base. I think it all happened with virtue. It's when Lyndon Johnson, for which he will be forever remembered, was got, got rid of segregation as much as it ever has been got rid of. And he did that in Congress, and he knew he'd lost the South. The Democrats would never really get the South again. Well, it's happened a couple of times, but uh, most of them became Republican so that they could hide, hate other races, you know, in peace, preferably at the country club. Before I ask my question, I wanted to refer you to one of your books, which is one of my favorites, Julian the Apostate. And I was wondering, the new uh, unacknowledged personality in American politics is God. I don't think that Julian the Apostate in modern version would have a chance. And my question is, how do you see the God of the Founding Fathers through now, and could any 
politicians who didn't believe in God, agnostic, atheists, days, have a chance of a snowflake in hell getting elected. <laughs> Could you tell us about it? Well, maybe he's already in hell, you know. Jefferson called himself a deist, but he was an atheist. Uh, you always had to disguise it. My grandfather invented something called Oklahoma. He had a great sense of humor and became their first senator, lasted 30 years, dedicated atheist. And when the Gore family broke up, his father became a Campbellite, which was trying to make sense out of the New Testament. A couple of others became Baptists, and they asked T.P. Gore, so which church are you going to go to? And he says, I'm going to the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) And never looked back. It can be done, but you, you have to tell a lot of lies, but they're good lies. You couldn't tell the truth. Get no, 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 but why do it? I mean, if simple folk want to think these, these things are true, let them. It's, it's, it's their privilege. And if they like to think that you think as they do, you're not hurting anybody by fooling them. There's a wonderful letter that John Adams wrote Thomas Jefferson toward the end of their lives when they resume their friendship and correspondence. And suddenly, out of the blue, Adams writes, what a wonderful world this would be without religion. (laughs) There it is, in stark black and white. And even Jefferson, you could tell by his answer, was slightly shocked, having spent all of his life dancing around the subject as a deist. So he said something terribly tactful, which he knew would look good in the history books. (laughs) Tocqueville writes about two kinds of parties, great parties that operate on principle and minor parties that operate day-to-day affairs. And you've just written a book about three individuals who are members of great parties. And in your discussion today, when you've been talking about various individuals, you seem to hold them to the caliber of, of great politicians, people who operate on principle of reclaiming the Constitution. Could you tell us a bit about, I mean, having to study this previous area so much, what would it take for America to go back to great parties? And could you tell us about some individuals, living politicians now, who embody that spirit? Well, for us to, um, let's say, not go back, but evolve into a country that wants to have real politics and real political parties, I think, I don't want to, speak hyperbole, but I think we're going to have to first have an educational system. We're the only first world country that has nothing for the public at large. We have those schools, but what they teach, having gone through all of the high school history books, I shudder at the nonsense that they're being told. There's one very good one that comes out of Boston, written by three people. But by and large, it's mythology, and the kids know it when they read it. And history is always the least popular uh, high school course. Purdue used to do an annual poll of the high schools, and history is always the bottom number, 100, after, you know, domestic channeling or whatever is popular. (laughs) And uh, academics bear a great weight for this horrible state of affairs. To make our history boring would take, uh, I shall not 
name other writers, but uh, <laughs> but take genius of a negative sort. <laughs> we are interesting. We fascinated the world, even when we were doing dumb things like the election of 1876. All of the intellectuals of Europe sent representatives. Victor Hugo wrote hymns to the United States on its 100th birthday. And then they steal an election in front of everybody. So here are all these delegations watching the most corrupt election we'd ever had. I'd say a knowledge of history and a sense that you had something to do with the country. Most people don't feel any connection with it. They just have their job and they do what they do. They watch television. They, they, they have perhaps eight people in common that they've heard of. Today it's Michael Jackson. Tomorrow it'll be General Jackson. The next day it'll be Stonewall Jackson. I don't know. I mean, I'm just doing Jacksons now. Uh, so you have to have a prepared people who feel that they're living in a real country. I don't think anybody thinks they're living in a real one. It's an advertising culture. First thing a child sees on television are ads. So if he says, well, uh, will that, if I send away for that ring, will I become invisible? Oh, no, no, that's just an ad. Next time when he sees a presidential candidate, he says, is he telling them? No, 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 none of that's true. Well, an advertising culture is not the best one to uh, become a culture that you would be proud of. As far as getting individuals, they come when the time is right. No one thought, would have predicted that Lincoln would uh, do what he did, including Lincoln, who zigzagged all over the place and was double-minded, to say the least, in many things. But it is what we've done, thanks to personalizing politics, it's nothing but individuals. Oh, he's nice. Oh, I can't stand her on television. Well, that isn't the way it ought to be. I tell an anecdote about uh, Tony Blair in this book about the Founding Fathers. Blair, when he got elected, I was in London covering that election for uh, BBC. So I met the heads of the parties and so on. I knew he was going to win. Very smooth. And a friend of mine who's a journalist who's a labor MP wrote a piece saying that disgusted with Blair and said he's taken the politics out of politics. Blair is elected and the first thing and my friend who objected to him got sent to the House of Lords immediately uh, gets an invitation to Downing Street. And this is, this is apropos us. So he arrives thinking he's going to have another, another prime minister who says you gave me a, a bad review. And Blair was very pleasant about it. He said, he said, you got it all wrong. I didn't take the politics out of politics. The politics had gone out of politics. A political party, particularly the Labour Party, which represents the working man and the class, represents a class, a condition of life. Sixty percent of the people of England think that they're middle class. Whether they are or not, they think they are. We can't have a Labour Party like the old one because that's ideological, and they don't think along those lines. I was the first politician, said Blair, to recognize that the politics had gone out of politics. 
And they want a good administration. They want this. They want that. But they don't want real politics as we know it. Well, I think we're at that point. Politics has gone out of it. Where's the Labor Party in this country? Where are the labor unions? The moment that a company could take a zenith of Chicago making radios when they went on strike back in the 40s, uh, they said goodbye, and they went to Mexico. There are a lot of people not working in Chicago because of it. Once, once this comes about, that you can go to another country and use uh, cheap labor, you've lost the power of labor, so labor's out of it. The farmers have been out of it for a long, long time. So all we've got is corporate America, which owns everything, including publishing and the way images are made. So you start with having to put the politics back in. And I think one way of doing it, since we are a reactionary country and always have been, uh, let's go backwards. Let's restore the Constitution. Nobody can say no to that one without being called a traitor. And then restore it. Oh, I know I'm asking for the moon when we have the stars, but even so. Um, my question will be about um, imaging uh, in the presidency right now. Two years ago, I stumbled on your um, screening history and um, gobbled that up. And then I happened to go see... Robin Hood with Errol Flynn about three weeks ago at a local theater, The Brattle. And <clears throat> and I had your book in the back of my mind as I was watching um, Errol Flynn do battle with this odd assortment of a king who was hanging out with a sheriff and someone else and cooking up um, evil plots. And um, I ended up feeling sort of troubled as I left the movie theater because it seemed to me that I had just been exposed to something perhaps a little bit like the worldview that is resident in the White House. Um, so my question to you would be if you could talk a little bit about popular culture right now as – well, about popular culture and how you see the, um, the powers that be uh, – What's the storyline they're creating about the bad guys and us? And how do you see that? If you could reflect a little bit on how that plays out right now. Well, that's too intimate a task. I would say that uh, what you must think about is what do they want from us aside from money? And I think they want docile workers and eager consumers and that's it. Nothing more is expected. Now they're starting up the wars again, and uh, they, they're, they're going to find that's a big mistake. But uh, the wars are coming, and they will be very unpopular. You know, Harvard let that book go out of print. <laughs> Screening history. What I have to put up with on this campus. <laughs> Read the uh, stealing of the next election again. Uh, as a software engineer, I've briefed the uh, ACLU here in Boston and the Boston City Council on specifically how you throw an election through programming. And with this sort of a excuse called proprietary software, Debold slash Bush, they're going to steal the next election. With a propaganda press like we have, 
first of all, how can we possibly get the word to the American people about how it's going to be stolen, very specifically, without us being able to read the dumps, not the source code, the dumps? Two, how can we go into court after the election is stolen and just pull everything to a halt? This election was completely bogus. We're not going to have a president until it's squared away. How do we do it? I can think of a number of ways. Three companies, each of them run by Republican donors. One is called Diebold. One is called Sequoia. I forget the third one. They're interlocked. Yes. And they have sold to state after state these bogus, rather quite effective, voting machines where you ballot, particularly the one where you touch the screen, the touch vote. Well, that sets off a spasm of energy, which is supposed to be you do it like this for Bush, and then whoever is manipulating it, and there's something called voters, um, voters something service. You back there, you, you know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's called VNS. It's in 34th Street in New York, and I am now writing a piece, which I hope to have ready, on this very subject. They are selling these machines, and they themselves, when you vote, let's say here in Boston, nobody in Boston is going to count your votes. It used to be the citizens of the locality would count, and they'd watch each other, too, as they were counting. No longer. It goes to 34th Street, VNS, and the vote is then arranged there, and no one is allowed to look inside these machines according to the contract that the state, which has bought the machines, has made with the three companies. Mm-hmm. On the grounds that they are, have trade secrets, uh, which they don't want people to know, so any official, the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, cannot open up one of these uh, ballots, balloting machines. And this is how it's done. It happened in Florida. You remember Albert was ahead by 8,000 votes. He has taken the state of Florida. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Then you hear bang, 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 and they're putting a patch on the, uh, on the tape inside the machine. We're sorry, that was wrong. Uh, Bush has won by 8,000 votes, the state of Florida. There it was in action. Highly recorded. They have brought suit after suit against people who have tried to expose this. Now, we're going to try once again at Vanity Fair to do it. And uh, a woman called Beth, know-it-all, give me her last name, Ellis Harris. Thank you. Thank God I'm at Harvard. <laughs> I couldn't have got these names at Yale. <laughs> because they would have all invested in these companies. <laughs> Beth Harris, and it'll soon be published, Black Box, it's called, and it tells you how the elections are stolen and how long it's been going on, how it's done, and it's absolutely fascinating, and your blood will run cold, and that's the second question. And the second answer. Thank you very much.